you want to get out your message outline, says the gospel gift on it. And if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. This is one of the great passages in the Bible and uh, it's well worth hearing again. Ephesians chapter 2. Please listen carefully as this is God's Word. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Next comes two of the greatest words in the Bible. But God. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are about 10 sermons in that passage, but you're only going to get one today. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We thank you that it is truth, and we thank you that this truth is very practical, that you mean to build us up in grace, that you mean to guide us in life, that you mean to change the way we look at the world and the way we look in the world, and that you mean to reorient the direction of our lives, you mean to equip us for every good gift. So by your word, encourage us in knowing who you are, and Lord, show us how we ought to respond to your grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. Teach us from this passage, show us our sin, show us our Savior, show us your grace, enable us by faith to embrace your truth and grow us by it. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Every year at the University College Hospital in London, England, they have a meeting of the hospital board. And every year, Jeremy Bentham, dressed in the formal wear of the early 19th century, is wheeled up to the board table. And the chairman says, Jeremy Bentham, present, but not voting. How come? Why would someone go to all the trouble of attending a meeting of the hospital board and then not vote? 
Well, in this case, it's because he can't vote. See, Jeremy Bentham has been dead for over 170 years. Mr. Bentham was a philosopher. He is known as the father of utilitarianism, which is the doctrine that actions are right if they're useful or they benefit the majority. But this whole sort of sad scenario is the result of Mr. Bentham's dark sense of humor. Some of you can identify. Because when he died, he left orders that his entire estate, very substantial at the time, be given to the hospital on the condition that his body be preserved and placed in attendance at all the board meetings. Now, they were only able to preserve it so long, so now it's sort of a Madame Tussauds wax thing uh, there. Uh, But it's been carried out, and Mr. Bentham still attends regularly. And I looked this up, and as far as I know, this is still happening. And apparently, he thought this was a great joke on his utilitarianism, since his attendance is neither useful nor does it benefit anyone. So think about that when you take money from someone with a dark sense of humor. You know, it's pretty obvious Mr. Bentham will never respond. He will never raise his hand to vote, and he will offer no motions. He can't. He's dead. And the fact is, dead people can't do anything this side of heaven. And that's what Paul is trying to get across in our passage this morning the spiritual state of those who are apart from Christ. Well, how can this be, you may wonder, when so many of us, unlike Jeremy Bentham, are so very much alive? Our bodies are clearly functioning, we have active minds, we're brimming with personality, most of us. But the answer is, in the areas that matter most, the soul, there are people who have no life. They're blind to the reality and the demands and the glory of Christ. And they don't love him. And because of this, the late Dr. John R.W. Stott said, we should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And those who live it are dead even while they're living. See, those without Christ or in sort of a metaphorical death valley. But before we take a look at this death valley, let's remind ourselves what we're going to be doing for the next few months here in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I have said my prayer. Simply, the truth of this letter will so grip your life, it'll change how you look at life. It'll change how you live your life. I've called this series The Gospel Life, and that's because the truth of the gospel as it's laid out in Ephesians will enable you to see God and see others and see yourself with new eyes. And your conduct, your behavior, your words, most of all your attitudes will be affected at school, at work, at home, uh, even here at church, because you'll have greater and greater desire to glorify God and honor Christ. So if you come faithfully over the next few months, you dive into this book of Ephesians with us, I'm asking that you read it carefully every week. You can read the whole book. It's only six chapters. It'll take you about 20 minutes. Or you can read a chapter a day, because there's six chapters. Um, And so then you're all ready when you come in on Sunday. 
but read it and listen intently to what it says. Because I believe if you do that, and read it like you would a book, just read it. Let God's word soak in, and I think God will do a life-changing work. But before we talk about spiritual life, we need to talk about spiritual death, because that's how this passage starts. You know, and I often wonder if sometimes good and thoughtful people have been more depressed about the human predicament uh, at any other point in time than they are today. You know, every age has sort of a blurred vision of its own problems because it's too close to get them in focus. And every generation breeds new prophets of doom. Nevertheless, the media enables us to grasp now a greater extent, the worldwide extent of sort of contemporary evil. And it makes the world look so dark. It's partly the result of escalating economic problems, such issue as the environment, hunger, inflation, unemployment, uh, partly the spread of social conflict, raci racism, tribalism, uh, class struggle, disintegrating family life. Partly the absence of accepted moral guidelines leads to violence, dishonesty, promiscuity. Man seems incapable of managing his own affairs or creating a just, free, humane, tranquil society. For man himself is askew. Now, I didn't make that up. Actually, John Stott wrote that back in 1979. And I think it's just as accurate today as it was back then. Man has a problem. And it's a problem of spiritual death. Because when sin works against us, we can sink to an amazing depth. An amazing depth. I've said this before. I'm always amazed when somebody comes into my office and says, Pastor, I've hit bottom. And most of the time my response is, oh no. It can get so much worse than this. You should repent now because you have no idea just how far down you can go. We had amazing depth. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Apostle Paul begins at the very bottom of Death Valley. Now, Death Valley in California is the lowest spot in the United States, at 280 feet below sea level. It's also the hottest place in the country with a record temperature of 134 degrees in the shade. That's hot, even for me. Apparently, it's called Death Valley for a reason. And Paul says that's where we were, at the bottom, dead in Death Valley. And he's not using this just as a figure of speech or as a warning about spiritual death. He's speaking here, he makes an absolute statement. You were apart from Christ, therefore you were spiritually dead. 
in God's eyes. There was no life uh, in you because of your trespasses and sins. Now, trespasses generally are sins of commission, the breaking of God's law. Sins are the sins of omission, missing the mark by not doing what God wants you to do. So sins of commission, what you did do, and sins of omission, what you didn't do. It's all covered. He says you're very much like Jeremy Bentham, present, but incapable of doing anything good spiritually. It's a lot like the gravestone I read about uh, this week that said, here lies so-and-so, dead at 20, buried at 40. You know, I think there's lots of people around today whose bodies are alive, but on the inside, they're spiritually dead, utterly ruined. And verse 2 gives us the reason for our past condition, being dead in our trespasses and sins. It says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When Paul says, you were dead, those are hard words. He intended them to be hard words. But he supports such a bold statement by saying that you are under the sway of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Once. The whole idea is here is we're talking about the past. What you used to be. Now, if what I'm talking about is for you present reality, then you have some hard questions to ask yourself about your own spiritual condition. Then I'll get back to that. But for believers, once, past tense, following the course of this world, what Galatians 1 calls the present evil age. Those without Christ are captive to the views and value system of today's society, which is hostile to Christ. Our world isn't apathetic to Christ. It's hostile to Christ and getting more hostile all the time. People have become willing slaves to the media-driven pop culture, the often mindless groupthink of social media, values that say if it works, do it. If you've ever wondered if Jeremy Bentham's philosophy took hold, it has. The whole, uh, you know, ends justifies the means argument has much in common with his philosophy. This idea of what works is more important than what's right. Not to mention the uncountable, constantly changing, selfish fads which come and go at an astonishing pace. And to put it plainly, spiritually dead people are dominated by the world. Not only were you once dominated by the world, but also by the world's ruler, Satan, about whom 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The world's bad enough, but it's become much worse when you realize it's under the control of the enemy, the one who hates Christ, who hates life. He's the one who leads us to disobedience, as it says in verse 3, to gratify the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the mind and the, of the body and the mind. This means as we're under the influence of our flesh, we have the innate ability to sin all on our own. 
We're fully capable of sin apart from the world and apart from Satan. But being under the world's influence and under Satan's control just makes everything worse. You know, it reminds me of the story about the little girl who got in trouble for kicking her brother and pulling his hair. And her mom said, now, why'd you let the devil make you kick your brother and pull his hair? And she answered, well, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. It's very much what we do. We sin because we follow the course of the world, because we're under the control of Satan, but we also sin due to our flesh, our sinful nature, all on our own, without help from anyone else. The Apostle Paul says we're sinners by nature. We were conceived in sin, born in sin, and lived in sin. Now, the last time I preached this, an older couple came up to me after the service in utter disbelief and questioned me. You don't mean to say that when that, that innocent baby is sinful, do you? To which I wanted to say, have you ever had a baby? But I didn't say that. I didn't. My tongue has teeth marks in it. But what I said is the Bible teaches us that we're not sinners because we sin, but that we sin because we're sinners. To which they said, we won't be back until you're gone. And they weren't. So just in case you're wondering, let me say it again. We're sinners by nature. End of verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were conceived in sin, born in sin, and lived in sin. And unless we turn to Christ, we'll die in sin. And therefore, we will remain objects of God's wrath. As Jesus himself said in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. On him. <coughs> Excuse me. So let me use an illustration. Help us understand what it means to be spiritually dead. Suppose I take a trip to see Niagara Falls. A number of you have been to Niagara Falls. And on my way there, I see a sign for motorboat rentals. And so I stop and rent a boat and head out into the middle of the river upstream. And uh, once out in the middle, though, the water gets into the engine and the engine dies. And now I am, quote, dead in the water. And Paul says we're dead, we're powerless. But remember, I'm not sitting in a still pond. I'm in a river that's flowing towards Niagara Falls. And there's a current that's moving me downstream. Paul says the current is following the course of this world. It's moving me downstream. Not only is there a current... But there's a wind blowing me downstream as well. And the text calls the wind the prince of the power of the air. This is Satan who's telling us to go with the flow, follow the course of the world. So now not only is the current moving me downstream, but I'm being blown downstream by the wind of the evil one. But now there's something in me that wants to paddle downstream, 
to see what's there because so far it seemed like a nice fun ride. And Paul says, following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So I'm dead in the water. The current of the world is taking me downstream. The wind of the devil is blowing me along even faster. And if that's not enough, I grab a paddle out of the boat and decide to help out. But that's not all. It turns out there's a lot of rocks in the river. Huge boulders I keep running into because I have no control. So now I'm slamming into these giant rocks. And something inside of me says, I've got a problem. i got to turn around and head back upstream. I'm going over the falls. So I'm able to turn the boat around and I start paddling upstream as hard as I can, going against the current and against the wind. But it's too late and they're too strong and I'm getting too tired, so I quit. And now I'm not only headed back into the rocks and heading back towards the falls, but I feel like a failure for doing it. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end that way is death. So what happens to me? I go over the falls. And what's at the bottom? Death Valley. You hit the bottom. Whether it's the bottom of the falls or the bottom of the desert, you wake up in Death Valley. But there's something real unique about Death Valley when you get to the bottom. And you look up, because 80 miles to the northwest is Mount Whitney. At 14,495 feet, the highest point in the continental United States. And from Death Valley, the lowest point, to Mount Whitney, the highest point. It's quite the contrast, because you move from amazing depth to amazing height. To amazing height. That's a second blank there, I hope. Starting in verse 4, amazing height. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Moving from amazing depth to amazing height is the kind of change the Apostle Paul says happens to us when God works for us. We move from the amazing depth of our past condition The amazing depth of our past condition. We're probably not going to have any words for the last song. Just <laughs> warning you now. Because we were dead. Dead in our trespasses, in our sins. Amazing depth. But now we move to amazing height of our present position in Christ. And so right off the bat, we get the reason for this tremendous change. Look again at verse 4. I already told you two of the best words in all the scriptures, but God. And that's the reason. That's why we can change 
from going over the falls, from being dead to being alive. God lets us know that our plan isn't going to work. Only his plan, being in Christ, is going to work. And why are we given the privilege of being in Christ? Because of, verse 4, God's great love and rich mercy. That's the reason, God's love and God's mercy from going from the depths to the heights. Now, the reality of our present position is that we're made alive in Christ Jesus. We're no longer spiritually dead, but verse 5, we've been raised up with Christ and seated with him where? In the heavenly places. Not only have we been spiritually raised from the dead, made alive with Christ, but we've also spiritually ascended. Now we are spiritually where we will be physically at the second coming, when Christ comes back. Now we've been spiritually raised and ascended. When Christ returns, we'll be physically raised and ascended with him. And we will be with him forever, but forever starts now, when we've been made alive with Christ, because we're no longer spiritually dead. Every month we come to the Lord's Supper. We will again in a couple of weeks. We did a few weeks ago. And most of the time, we profess what we believe by saying together the Apostles' Creed. And in that creed, we say three things in particular about Jesus. After we've confessed together that he was crucified, dead, and buried, we're going to say he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then we're going to say he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That is his resurrection, his ascension, and his session, or being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You ever wonder where that word session comes from? Now you know. And so we profess in the Apostles' Creed that we believe that Jesus was resurrected, we believe Jesus ascended into heaven, we believe he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling the world by his word and spirit for the sake of his people. It's a glorious thing to say, and it's all right here in Ephesians. But I want you to notice what else Paul says here in Ephesians 2. Because Paul doesn't just say that Jesus was raised and ascended and seated at the right hand. What else does he say? He says that you have been raised from the dead. You ascended into glory and you are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. How? Having by faith trusted in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has united you to Jesus Christ so that everything that is Christ's is yours. That's salvation. That's what God is saying. That in his mercy, he has saved you by giving you everything that belongs to Christ. He's given you the benefits of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. He's given you the benefits of Jesus' ascension. He's given you the benefits of Jesus' heavenly session, ruling at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has saved you from sin and from the condemnation of sin, and he's given you all the benefits that flow from what Jesus has done on your behalf. He has taken you to an amazing height. And yet, not only do we get to an amazing height, having been made alive with Christ because of God's great love and rich mercy. But we're also guaranteed, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's grace, all those great things we receive from him, none of which we've earned or deserved, is given to us now and even more will be given to us then. 
Why? So we can be an example to the world of how unlimited God's kindness is in Christ. There's no limit to God's grace, no limit to his love, no limit to his mercy, no limit to his kindness. And he's going to show it to the world by lavishing it on us, his chosen people. That's a richness that the world can never, ever match. The unlimited grace of God poured out on those who believe. And that grace is seen most clearly in salvation. In fact, when God works his salvation in us is when it's truly seen as amazing grace. Amazing grace, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our text gives us one reason salvation is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If salvation came by works, If you did it, you know, eternity would just spawn a fraternity of virtue-naming, talent-dropping, chest-thumping boasters. An endless line of celestial Pharisees right out of Luke 18, where we would nod our Presbyterian amen to the prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And nobody makes better Pharisees than conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Presbyterians. We make great Pharisees. We are professional boasters. Everyone here is doing that. Some of you are looking to your career. Because not many people have had the career that I've had. Some of you are looking to your grades because you're smart. Some of you are looking to your salary. Some of you are looking to your moral decency. Some of you are looking to your religiosity. You're looking to something. Pastors do too. I go to General Assembly. It's always, hey, Dave, how's it going? How you doing? And then somebody asks the question, how's the church? And what they're really asking is, how many people, how much money, how much staff, how big is your building? And so I'll say, Oh, we're doing great. We have about 19,000 people. <laughs> uh, no, you don't. I'm like, no, we don't. Neither do you. Stop. Just. <laughs> so it's fun. I mean, sorry. Um, but we all do that. We're all looking to something. And it's exhausting because everything you're looking up to are things that you must achieve, you must acquire, you must perform for. They're hard to get, and the reality is often we fail. And even if we get them, we feel like we're failing. We feel like we're never good enough. And a life looking for things to boast in is a life of scrambling for identity, scrambling for worth, scrambling for esteem, scrambling to perform. It's exhausting. In Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, it was the goats on his left that do all the boasting. And they're sent to judgment. The sheep on his right can't even recall their good deeds 
And yet they're the saved who go on to their heavenly reward. For salvation is not a result of works. No one who's saved will have any grounds to boast before God or will even want to. And important as this is, there are even deeper reasons why salvation is not by works. Namely, the utter sinfulness of humanity contrasted with God's transcending standard of righteousness. God is radically righteous. His righteousness is the standard. And no human can attain this because we're all radically sinful. The word radical comes from the Latin uh, word radix, which means root. And the root of our being, every part of our person, is tainted with sin. It's the foundation of the Apostle Paul's devastating litany of condemnation in Romans 3, where Paul puts together this overwhelming list of evidence which proves the universally corrupt character and conduct of all people. And he concludes that the entire human race, Jews and Gentiles, religious, irreligious, pious and pagans, all suffer from radical inner corruption. Even our very best works are tainted by sin and can never approach the radical righteousness which God demands. No matter how high we climb our moral ladder, it's not high enough. Salvation is not a result of works. And the truth is, despite our popular folk religion, our paddling upstream will never work. No matter how good we are, the distance is too far, the current is too strong, the wind is too constant, and we are too flawed. We can try, but we will fail. The Bible says, not a result of works, and that's the simple truth. So if we're not saved by works, how are we saved? And the answer here is, by grace. Look again at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what exactly is grace? It is unmerited favor. The love of God going out to the utterly undeserving. It's a lavish, extravagant, joyous word. But the great transcending emphasis of this text is that grace is a gift. It's the free gift of God. And the idea, and this not your own doing, is that by God's grace, you are people who are saved through faith. This whole event, this whole experience is God's free gift to you. Grace is what keeps us from going over the falls. Grace is what not only turns our boat around, but pulls it out of the water. Grace doesn't merely take us out of Death Valley, but it puts us on top of Mount Whitney. Grace is what moves us from the depths to the heights. Grace is what enables us to be alive in Christ. And grace is what refuses to leave us dead in our trespasses and sins. Perhaps you've heard the grace acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Not at our expense. It wasn't our works. There's nothing for us to boast about. We've already seen where our works lead, over the falls. But it's by God's grace, wholly undeserved, given to us as a free gift by God. So who gets the glory with God's plan? God does. Who gets to boast with God's plan? God does. So what do we get to do? Well, that's the next part. Because the very last verse tells us about amazing works. Amazing works. It says... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
I've already said that our pitiful works aren't enough to earn our salvation. When it comes to eternity, they're a bad investment. But after we've been given the free gift of God, uh, that's salvation in Christ Jesus, then our works take on a whole new meaning. They become good works. They become the return on investment. They become our response to grace. After God has done his work for us and in us, then he does his work through us. He's prepared the good works for us to do. He worked in us to make us acceptable to him, and now he works through us, making our works good in his sight. This is what Paul wrote Titus. In Titus chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it starts with grace, ends with good works. And that's what good works are all about, our response to God's grace. So how do you respond to God's grace? What would life be like without boasting? What would a life of faith look like? What would a life of grace look like? What would a life without boasting look like? Let me give you three marks of a scrambling, boasting, restless life, and therefore contrast it with three marks of a restful, grace-filled, grace-based life. First is the issue of anger versus contentment. Just three points of application. I could probably come up with a dozen. We're just going to do three. Anger versus contentment. Do you believe everything you have is a gift more than you deserve? Then that means no matter how life goes, you can say, Lord, you know what's best, and I don't deserve as much as I have. Here it is. And you can be content. But that's not how you are if deep down inside you're really looking for something to boast in. You're trying to earn your salvation. You're trying to earn your sense of confidence. You're always working hard. And when life doesn't go well, when circumstances don't go well, you get mad at life or you get mad at God. And there's always an undercurrent of anger, not contentment. If you knew you were a sinner saved by grace, you'd be content. There wouldn't be anger. Have you ever met an angry Christian? Hard to be around, right? Have you ever been an angry Christian? Still hard to be around. You need grace. Second, disdain versus acceptance. You know, it's okay to be glad that you've worked hard in life and you're a hard worker. In fact, there are many people who are proud of the fact that whatever else, I'm a productive person. I work really hard. And it's okay to be glad about that but if that's your identity, if that's the thing you boast in, if that's the thing that earns for you the confidence to face the world, then you despise anybody you think is lazy. You just can't stand them. You look down on them. And therefore, a life of boasting means a life of looking down at people, People of different cultures, people of different races, people of different religions, people of different anything. And generally, most people 
don't let the disdain out because, of course, they want to be well thought of. And everybody knows disdainful people are not well thought of. And, of course, that self-centered person wants to be well thought of, too. And if you walk around looking down at different kinds of people and you just despise them, you don't say it out loud. You may post it on social media, but you don't say it out loud. People of other classes, people of other nationalities, people with particular views, people of other religions, people of the other political party. Well, there's a hot-button issue. Huh? Preacher's gone to meddling now. I mean, anybody here look down on people with different political views? Don't answer that. Because most of you have or will do exactly that. And you know it. Republicans, Libertarians, Democrats, pick one, doesn't matter because you just can't stand them. And you're miserable. If you really knew you were a sinner saved by grace, you're able to, excuse me, you're able to accept people, even people you disagree with, even those people. There wouldn't be that disdain. Third, bitterness versus forgiveness. If you know you're saved by grace and not by your own works, you can forgive. Because the only way you can stay bitter and hold a grudge and remain angry at somebody is if you're sure that you're superior to them. If somebody has done something to you, but you know that you do that too, and you know that you could do that too, and you know that you have done that too, it's hard to stay bitter about that. But if you look at that person... And you say, I would never do that. You know who's the king of saying I would never do that in my house? You can keep bitterness forever. You can hold on to that grudge as long as you want to. There's a reason you walk around bitter. It's because you're proud. And a sinner saved by grace can forgive a sinner saved by grace can accept. A sinner saved by grace can be content. A sinner saved by grace isn't always wrestling at night because somebody snubbed you. A sinner saved by grace can relax. If you're living a life of faith, you're living a life of rest. If you're living a life without any more boasting, you don't need to boast. You can have confidence in Jesus. You can lay your deadly doing down and rest in him gloriously complete. Now let's put the whole thing together. The first three verses tell us the essence of sin is putting ourselves where only God should be, at the center of our lives, on the throne of our lives. Only God should be there, right? And what is sin? It's putting ourselves where God deserves to be. And what's salvation? It's God putting himself where we deserve to be, on the cross. Because Jesus went and took our place, he took the punishment we deserve, and he didn't just take physical death, he took the wrath of God, verse 3, he was cut off from his father and he experienced the agony we would experience if we were cut off from God for all eternity. I can't even imagine. He experienced all that. Why? He went into our seat so we can sit in his. That's the reason why, again, John Stott put it so well years ago. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Dr. Stott said, for the essence of sin 
is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. How does that work? Well, here's how it works. Do you want to be blasted out of your own self-centeredness? How did Jesus Christ save you? He saved you through the absolute opposite. He saved you through the most radically unself-centered thing that anyone has ever done. Although he was equal with the Father, he emptied himself of his glory, came down and took the place of a servant and said, my life for yours. See, knowing about the amazing depth and knowing about the amazing height and knowing about the amazing grace and knowing about the amazing works that comes from being in Christ isn't enough. Because these things, these changes, this gospel life doesn't come just from knowing the truth about Christ, but comes from knowing Christ himself. You are not made with, right with God by how much you know, and certainly not by how much you do. You are made right with God by grace, through faith, in Christ. If you need a reminder of that, look on the front of your bulletin. Christ, by the richness of his grace, God, by his great love and rich mercy, the immeasurable riches of his grace, makes us alive in Christ, and he makes that a reality for you. And the Bible says that God does this for you because of his great love and mercy. When you place your faith in Christ, all this becomes true for you, not because you know it, not because you feel it, but because God says it and God does it. And since he says it and he does it for you, therefore you believe it and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior by grace through faith. Please, if you haven't done that, you need to ask yourself, why not? And if you have done it, you need to say thank you. Take a moment to do that. You need to pray, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of not knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're so grateful that you've given us such a great salvation. You have saved us. You've rescued us from following the river and going over the falls. You have placed our feet in high places. We thank you that we've been saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, and that even our faith is a gift of God. So we ask that by faith you would grow us up into maturity, even as we believe your word, and that you would receive all the glory for it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Remain standing for God's blessing. 
from Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God bless you. We'll see you next week.